Uh, we are in the midst of a series that we are calling The Universe Next Door, and we are looking at eight different uh, worldviews, different than Christianity. And the reason that we're doing that is because we believe by understanding and having a, having a familiarity with other ways of seeing the world that, that we might be better at having big conversations. So we've talked about, and you've heard it already tonight, we are annoyingly passionate here at Sedaris about having great conversation. We are trying to raise the level of conversation in our city, but that begins by us being intentional, devoted to ourselves having great conversation. So this series is an attempt to sort of begin the conversation amongst ourselves, but hoping that it spills out into our city, into the rest of the world. So let's pray, and then we'll get into tonight's worldview a little bit more. Father God, we thank you that we get to be your voice in the world, that we get to ask people questions about you, that we get to engage people in big conversations, that you've given us the capacity as human beings not only to live and to act, but to think, to ponder, to wonder, to consider who are you, what are you doing, and how do we participate, how do we respond, how do we go forth in this world and live as your ambassadors. We pray tonight that this would be a meaningful time where we feel like work was done, that we learned something about who you are and about the way that people created in your image think about you and the world, that we might enter into big conversations for your glory, that people might come to see freedom from what may or may not be ways of thinking that are counter to truth. We would just pray that as we think, as we consider, and as we converse, that truth would rise to the top. That's our hope and our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Bring me a fruit from the banyan tree. Here it is, Father. Break it. It is broken, sir. What do you see in it? Very small seeds, sir. Break one of them, my son. It is broken. What do you see in it? Nothing at all, sir. Then his father spoke to him, My son, from the very essence in the seed which you cannot see comes in truth this vast banyan tree. Believe me, my son, an invisible, subtle essence is the spirit of the whole universe. That is reality. That is Atman. Thou art that. Today we are looking at a worldview known technically as Eastern Pantheistic Monism. And we'll explain what that means. But where you see this probably most often is in the East, of course. And certain streams of Buddhism and Hinduism will believe this worldview. But it's not isolated to there. You see it in the United States. You see it amongst Western philosophers. Men like Spinoza and others hold to this view. And the basic idea... Thou art that, that we are all part of God, pieces of the ultimate reality. We are all one, hence the term monism. So my hope is not to disparage or disregard this thinking that millions, hundreds of millions of people adhere to around the world, not to disparage it, but to rightly articulate 
how the gospel of Jesus Christ is different. Also that we might understand this way of thinking, look at what's attractive, and see how we might engage people that think this way in conversation, learning from them, hearing from them, allowing them to articulate for themselves the way they see the world. So I don't want to fall into simple caricatures or sweeping generalizations, but that being said, I have limited time, and this is a old, old way of thinking, and there are many avenues and ways that this plays itself out, so please give me grace as I attempt to articulate and fairly represent uh, this worldview. Also, I just want to say that there are many forms of Hinduism and Buddhism. We'll use those religions as examples of how this worldview plays out. A worldview is not necessarily a religion, but it plays itself out into religious thinking and acting. So there's many forms of that. So you might find yourself in a conversation with a Hindu or Buddha, Buddhist, and you will not uh, hear maybe some of the things I'm talking about. That's because there are many forms of Hinduism and Buddhism. They are not all the same. But this particular uh, form of Buddhism and Hinduism is very popular, particularly in the United States, so I'm going to be focusing on those parts of uh, Buddhism and Hinduism because of their popularity in the States. So, what is pantheistic monism? Remember, we have our eight questions. These are written in your bulletin if you want to follow along. We are going to actually take them in chunks tonight because, as you might imagine, Uh, Once we move away from uh, the systematized, organized thinking of the West to the East, sometimes our categories don't work well for the way that they think. In fact, they would hate the idea that we are putting them even into chunks of questions. But alas, we are Western people. We think in this way, so we will do it. So I will take them in chunks, the eight questions, but you can follow along and look at them in the bulletin to see what they are. So we'll take questions one, two, and three up front first. Those questions are, what is prime reality? That is the really real. Two, what is the nature of external reality? That is the world around us. And three, what is a human being? So we'll take those together and we'll make some comments that will help us to understand this worldview. So the first statement that is encapsulated in in each of those is that Atman is Brahman, which means that the soul of each and every human being And they speak of the soul as Atman. The soul of each and every human being, Atman, is the soul of the cosmos, Brahman. And Brahman is the ultimate reality. So, there is a sense of God in pantheistic Mosaism, but God is not a a personal being as in uh, Christianity or Judaism or Islam, for instance, But it's an impersonal sort of essence, and you heard it in the short excerpt I read for you, which is a a classic uh, Hindu text. So God uh, exists, but God is not, in the sense, personal. He is infinite, but he is not knowable in the same way that a personal God would be knowable. So God is actually the entire cosmos, that is, all that exists. There's nothing outside of Brahman Brahman is everything, and since Brahman is, what they often say, the one, that's where we get the term monism, everything is Brahman, we as human beings, if we understand and realize, are part of the one. Technically, every human being is a part of God. 
thou art that. So really, our inability to realize and experience our oneness with the one Brahman is our shortcoming, is our sin, to, to steal a Christian term. This is our lack of realization. And so salvation means to realize that we are actually a part of God. So think back to the banyan tree parable. Believe me, my son, an invisible and subtle essence is the spirit of the whole universe. That reality, Brahman, that is Atman. Thou art that. You see that? Now sometimes Hinduism and Buddhism, their scriptures can be somewhat uh, difficult to understand. But I think it's clear there that essence, that everything is a part of the one essence of the world and we as human beings are part of it. So that's a hu- hugely important to understand that way of thinking. The second comment under this cat chunk of uh, questions is this. Some things are more one with ultimate oneness, that is Brahman, God, than others. Some things are more one with the ultimate oneness, Brahman, than others. So there is, in pantheistic monism, a hierarchy of appearances, right? Minerals, vegetables, animals, humanity. See that hierarchy? Now we we would understand it as Christians in the same way we have a hierarchy. And in fact, humanity itself, there is a hierarchy. So some people are closer to unity with Brahman than others, closer to realizing their oneness with others. And so in India, for instance, you see the the caste system, where you have um, different castes of people who are closer and closer to the one. The highest, of course, being spiritual leaders, gurus, sages, and whatnot. Because they are closest to realizing their oneness with the one. The third comment here. Many, if not all, roads lead to the one. Okay, so there's this hierarchy of closeness to the one. But there are many roads and avenues to the one. Many paths that bring people from a separateness with the one to bringing them to, a, to the reality, the closeness of the one. In conversation, how this plays out is the goal is not necessarily to find the one path. We all need to find the one path to get to the one goal. Uh, what you'll see is much openness and celebration of multiple paths as long as they're heading in the same direction towards oneness. So, this direction is more of a right orientation than it is a right doctrine, okay? What's very, very interesting in particularly Eastern pantheistic monistic religions is that doctrine, like we focus on a lot in the West, is not that important to them. What's important to them is technique. The technique, because it's the technique that brings you actually closer, right? We want good technique, so chanting, meditation on mandalas, which is ornate, uh, structured circular images, repetition of prayers, uh, yoga, uh, repeating Om, which is actually Om is an untranslatable uh, word because the idea is to pass beyond definition and distinction to make oneness with the one Brahman. Does it make sense? Probably a lot of us have participated in yoga. A lot of it is emptying of the mind, right? We're trying to empty our mind in order to experience a peace with, a connection with oneness. So that's a technique through breathing and stretching and other things. That's a technique 
more than it is a doctrine. And this is very, very much a part of this thinking that we are all connected to the one, so we need to find ways uh, to realize that. Uh, you'll hear sayings like this, all rivers flow to, to one ocean. You may have heard the uh, parable of blind men and the elephant. They would speak of a religion in this way. All religions are ultimately touching the same elephant, which is Brahman. We are just describing it differently because we're blind and we are touching the elephant. And so we might be touching his tail. And so we're describing it as a long, thin, rope-like furry on the end. Or we might be touching the trunk. No, it's a little bit thicker uh, and it makes weird noises. Or we might be touching a leg and we're like, no, it's very hard and solid. They would say we're all touching the same elephant. We're just describing it differently. So the fourth comment underneath uh, this first uh, chunk of questions is this. To realize one's oneness with the cosmos, that is Brahman, is to pass beyond personality. Beyond personality. So remember the first proposition. Atman is Brahman. And Brahman is the impersonal universe, all that's in it. So if we as Atman, the personal human soul, human beings want to become one with Brahman, we must drop our personality. Our personality must escape us because Brahman itself is impersonal. So to become one with it, we must pass beyond personality. This is actually one I have an incredibly difficult time with, uh, particularly as I watch my son, who's now just over three months old, as his personality begins to emerge and he's smiling and he's laughing and I feel like he's manipulating me. All these things are coming. And the more and more I see his personality come out, the more and more I love him, the more and more I'm connecting with him, the more and more I feel like a good thing is happening. But if we're to be pass beyond personality, it seems to me that that would say Grayson's heading in the wrong direction. That's hard for me. I wrestle with that. Is it true that we must pass beyond personality? I, I tend to love different personalities, distinctive, unique personality characteristics. Now, this idea of the, the many becoming the one, you may, it, it's wedding season, you may be thinking, well, don't Christians say something like that? If you've been to a wedding this summer, you've probably heard uh, the verse talked about, and the two shall become one. So is Christianity similar in the oneness? Elsewhere it talks about we must be one body in Christ. Is this the same concept as we see in pantheistic monism? Here's what I think the distinction is. In marriage, when the two individuals become one flesh, what's happening is not the extinction of the unique personalities. What's happening is... As two personal, unique individuals come together to create one new flesh in a covenantal union, what's happening is not the extinction of personality, but I think if done properly in the way that God has intended marriage to work, full personality actually comes out. In fact, I believe that marriages are malfunctioning if one or the other spouse loses their personality. And this actually can happen. Perhaps it's one dominant personality that overrides the other and crushes it. That is a malfunction of marriage. What actually should happen, 
is that full personality of both come out. Wow, one union, one covenantal union also emerges. So it's a both and. And that new covenantal union creates one mission that we are now on together as we seek to live in marriage as God has designed it. So yes, the two become one flesh, but the two don't lose their individuality. Uh, Another helpful example of this is the beautiful game. Think of a soccer field. Think of the many members of the soccer team. They voluntarily commit to join together in union for a common mission, a common purpose. But what's interesting is the better that they connect as one unit, what also happens? The more what? Brilliance, beauty, fame, collective beauty that also emerges out of their coming together as one. I, uh, I own two Brazilian soccer jerseys, and I can't think of a more beautiful uh, country to watch play soccer than Brazil. You think of these very famous Brazilian soccer players, and what we would say is they are full of grace and beauty as they, as they work on the field, but I do not believe that we would know of them or recognize their beauty if they had not covenanted together to be a part of the team. And so then what comes out is great individual, unique personalities on the field. Pele, Ronaldo, Kaká, Ronaldinho. I just really love saying their names. And it's the, it's the only uh, team where you get to put your first name on the jersey, which is why it's such a great example here. Their individuality is not lost just because they become one. So our oneness even with God through his covenant with us does not incinerate our own personality but it gives it its fullest meaning as we find ourselves in Christ. We don't lose ourselves in Christ, we find ourselves in him. So now we're going to move to our second chunk of questions. I'm moving as fast as I can here. Question four and question six, we're going to lump together, so if you want to look at those. Question four is, what happens to a person at death? Question six is, how do we know what is right or wrong? Now what's interesting about this idea, Atman becoming Brahman, realizing that you're a part of God. What's interesting about it is that when you realize your oneness with the cosmos, you pass beyond good and evil. You pass beyond good and evil. The cosmos, uh, this is why, the cosmos are perfect at every moment as they are because they are God. So whatever is in them is a part of God. So you're passing beyond good and evil. So theoretically, every action, whether we think it's good or evil, is in essence neutral because it's a part of the oneness. Now we still see it and think of it as good and evil. We still experience that, but theoretically it is not. It's neutral because it's a part of God. Now here's the problem with it. That is incredibly hard to live into the fullness of that worldview. And so what's happened in almost all religions or ways of thinking that are connected with this idea is um, you see what's called karma come out. You've probably heard of karma. Because it's incredibly hard to deny morality. So karma tells us that one's present situation, where we happen to be in the cosmos, is related to past action. Okay? Pleasure, pain, life as a king, or life as a peasant, or even life as a gnat are all tied to past actions, and it's all related to this uh, impersonal idea of karma. So our souls are eternal, but we are reincarnated through different lives 
into different positions within the world. And the goal is to sort of work your way up the hierarchy through living a good moral life. And it's all based on this idea of karma. Uh, Karma to me sounds a little bit like a credit score. Uh, And like your credit score, every action you make, every debt you pay or don't pay, every credit card you open or don't open, it all plays into your credit score. I think it's also like a credit score in that you definitely need to pay attention to karma to make sure you're not dropping. And so the tendency is, even though uh, we're to pass beyond good and evil, there is a hypersensitivity to it because, like our credit score, it matters a lot for our future. Also, like a credit score, confession is of no use. I do not know who you call if you don't like your credit score. You can't call and confess. I know I've been bad uh, at paying my bills lately, but if you could just let me off this time, if you could just bump up my credit score, I'm trying to get a home loan. I don't know what number that is. If you know it, please send it to me. So your score is your score, regardless of your circumstance, regardless of what led to those moral failures, regardless of anything, your bad actions must be paid in full. There is no forgiveness only the cycle of reincarnation so that hopefully in turn you can pay off and raise your score. So death, this is the second statement, death is the end of the individual personal existence but it changes nothing essential to the individual who is the eternal soul because Atman is the soul and Atman continues on and is indestructible being reincarnated. Third chunk, five and seven. Why is it possible to know anything at all, and what is the meaning of human history? To realize one's oneness with the cosmos is to pass beyond knowledge. The principle of non-contradiction does not apply where ultimate reality is concerned. Knowledge, as we think of it, is dualistic because we need a knower and something to know. And so, since we're in a monistic worldview, we have to reject knowledge as we think of knowledge in favor of experience. So the, the way, the categories we think of knowledge uh, don't apply very well, which can make it very difficult in conversations uh, with uh, folks from these particular uh, worldviews and religions because they do not think of knowledge in the way that we do. Second statement, to realize one's oneness is to pass beyond time. So we, of course, as Western people, think of time as very real, Pantheistic monism, time is unreal. History is not a linear growth towards a goal. It's cyclical. And finally, our last question, number eight. What personal life-orienting core commitments are consistent with this worldview? The The core commitment is to do whatever it takes to realize your own oneness with oneness itself, that is Brahman. Choose your own path. Work towards that end so that you can escape this cycle of reincarnation, so that you can fully become one with the one. What makes this so attractive? I think there's lots of things that make this attractive. One is that the idea of sin is not breaking some external standard, but it's a lack of internal awareness of that everything is as it should be. There's some peace to be found in that, isn't there? It's not something that I necessarily need to change. It's something that I just need to become aware of. I think another thing that's attractive is that all ways lead ultimately to the same place. I think that's a very attractive notion, particularly in this day and age. 
I think it's also attractive that there's no limit to the chances that you get to figure it out. This isn't a one and done kind of situation. You've got as many reincarnations as it takes in order to figure out your oneness with Brahman. There tends to be a much less urgency, much less pressure on figuring out salvation. And finally, I don't think it would be that bad to realize that I was part of God. I think there is something in us innately that we feel uh, something of the divine. And so to just say we are all part of the divine, I think, is very attractive. Okay, that is pantheistic monism. A stripped-down version, of course. But hopefully you're starting to see how that thinking works And now I'm going to talk about three rubs that I see. A logical rub, a scriptural rub from the Bible, and then a gospel rub. When put next to each of these, there's, I think, a few things that jumped out to me. I've said, this just doesn't fit up with the way that we think logically, or that scripture talks about things as they are, or about what the gospel teaches us, about how God interacts with, with us. So I'm going to go through them in three ways, and I think, now the reason I wanted to do it this way, this is the first time I've done these three rubs, but God has given us a logical, rational mind, okay? So he wants us to use it. He's also given us his word in Holy Scripture. He wants us to use it, and he's given us the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed to us as it was received by the apostles, and so he wants us to use the gospel First, the logical rub. Pantheism is, in fact, C.S. Lewis would say, and I agree with him, the natural bent of the human mind, meaning that although in some ways it seems quite complex how it works, in other ways it's very, very simple. And so the tendency of the human mind is when we come across a very complex idea is we prefer to simplify it, right? So uh, C.S. Lewis gives this example. If you want to read this, I cannot do C.S. Lewis justice. He has a book called Miracles, and there's a chapter in it. Just read the whole thing. I forget the name of the chapter, but it's about three-quarters of the way through. It is an incredible uh, description. I'm going to try to pull out some of the most important parts, but here's this idea of we tend to simplify things that we don't understand. He talks about for, for many, many uh, centuries, people have thought that there were atoms, these small Smaller than we can see with our naked eye, pieces that make up the material world. They've always thought it. But it's only recently till we have a better understanding of what actually an atom is. But before we really had a good idea, we experienced it, or we were able to observe it, an experiment with the idea of the atom, we came up with what we thought an atom was. We, what we did is we took things that we already knew, like sand or salt, And we said, it's just much smaller than that, but it's the same thing. Well, what we know now is that's not really actually what an atom is. It's not just a very tiny piece of uh, material, but it's actually much more complex than that. And And he says of pantheism that the tendency is, when we're trying to think about God, because it's so beyond us, Uh, Because God is beyond us, the tendency is to sort of simplify it and describe God based on what we already know. And what do we know? We know the world around us, and we know ourselves. And so when we try to define what God is, we tend uh, to simplify him and just say he is everything 
around us. And when we do that, what we tend to do, because we can't understand how God is personal, we say he's impersonal. Because we can't fully understand how God is non-physical, we just say he's a part of all the physical. When in fact it's more complex than that. God is not impersonal, and in fact he's not personal exactly in the way that we're personal. He's actually more complex. He's, a better term would be super personal. See what I'm saying? It's not that God is non-physical, It's that he's trans-physical. He's beyond the physical world. And so because we can't fully grasp that, the tendency is, well, let's just say he is everything. Or let's just say he's impersonal because we don't understand how his personality is different. And so the tendency then is to fall back into thinking that God is just everything and we are a part of God. C.S. Lewis uses the example of an aquatic snail trying to define what a human being is. And the only way that the snail can define what a human being is, is by defining what it's not. Well, a human being is not in a shell like we are, but they can't fully explain what we're like. Well, they're not attached to a rock like we are, but they can't understand what freedom from a rock is. And so, in the same one, when we try to describe God, we get very uh, frustrated, and so um, we only tend to to define what he's not. That's why, of course, we need revelation. God tells us about himself so that we can better understand him and describe him. So think of talking about the love of God. God does not love us exactly in the same way as we love one another. His love is actually beyond that, but we struggle for the language. But we'd never say God is not love. He is super love or trans love. He is above our experience of love, but he is love in himself. Okay? This might be, so uh, by uh, C.S. Lewis, Miracles, just read the whole thing and you'll come across the chapter that explains this much better than I can. But before we move on, let me try to give one more concrete example. And C.S. Lewis comes to this conclusion, I would come to this conclusion, uh, at all costs, we must not think of God as a featureless generality. If he exists at all, he is the most concrete of things, the most individual, the most organized, the most personal entity. He is unspeakable, not by being indefinite, but by being too definite for the vagueness of our human language. He is too definite for the vagueness of our human language. So rather than confuse the issue by saying that God is not physical like we are physical or not personal in the way that we are personal, it's better to say that he's trans-physical, trans-personal, which is to say he's beyond physicality, beyond personality, but not featureless, and certainly not lacking concreteness, because concrete things can only come from something more concrete. That's the logical rub. The tendency is to simplify something that is hard to understand and strip it maybe of its distinctiveness rather than giving it its full distinctiveness which is what I think we ought to do when talking about God. Now, the scriptural rub. Romans 12, 1 to 8. If you've got it, turn to it. 12, Romans 12, 1 to 8. It's in the New Testament. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, the capital of the known world at the time. And Paul is speaking about the church 
and about how Christians should interact with one another and interact with God living in community. Romans 12, starting in verse 1, says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. I'm going to take this apart very quickly, but I want you to see how if this is true, there are some things about pantheistic monism that cannot be true. First is this, first line. By the mercies of God, present your bodies as living sacrifice. Our physical bodies in a Christian understanding and a biblical understanding of bodies are not an illusion which we need to get rid of, but they are real, distinct, concrete things that are a part of God's good creation. And we don't need to escape our bodies, but we need to transform our bodies and present them as living sacrifices to God. This is our spiritual worship nonetheless. So you see how the physical and the spiritual are connected. And we direct them as a, as a uh, worship to God. Verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Do not be conformed. This is the goal, not being conformed. See how different that is? The goal of pantheistic monism is to be conformed to the world, which is everything, which is Brahman, which is God. But the goal of Christianity is to not be conformed, but what? To be transformed. Very different concept. And what are we transforming? Well, it includes the renewal of our mind. Verse 2. Renewal of, of, of our mind. Our mind is real, it's distinctive, and we're responsible to renew it, which does not mean emptying of our mind, of substance, of content, but it means actually the opposite, to fill our mind with knowledge of God, the will of God. So the idea for the Christian of, of the mind is very, very different. The mind is not entrapping us with illusion. It's illuminating the truth. So what are we to do? By testing, we may discern what is the will of God. The will of God, God is not impersonal, but he actually has a will. He is volitional. He is a personal agent. He has a will, and we are to figure out what that will is. That's why God has communicated to us here. He communicates it to us through the Spirit. And he wants us to know his will, which is real, it's distinctive, and it is separate from the universe that he's created. And we can distinguish it. So we are to uh, discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will. Good, acceptable, and perfect. There's a distinct distinction clearly here between good and evil, right and wrong, perfection and imperfection. 
We cannot say then that the world as it is is perfect if we must work towards that, distinguishing good from evil. That cannot be a part scripturally of our understanding of the world. Verse 3, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but with sober judgment. Sober judgment about ourselves seems here to think of ourselves as gods would be uh, not sober judgment. We are finite, God is infinite. We must think of ourselves properly. That doesn't mean that we're not valuable because we're creating the image of God. So we've got his fingerprint all over us, but that does not mean that we are equivalent to God. There is distinction there, so be sober in our judgment of ourselves. For as one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. Here is that same idea we talked about with marriage. We are one body which is collective, but we do not all have the same function, meaning that we are not all the same. We are distinct, we are unique creations of God. He has made us all to play our role, but together we come together to form one. So the idea of oneness is not altogether bankrupt, but understanding how it works through distinctiveness is at least the way scripture talks about it. One body, recognizable distinct functions, including one body in Christ and individually members. Individuality is a part of Christianity. Not to lose it, but to find it in Christ. That's the goal. And so we have this picture from this passage and other passages of the understanding of God's creation that it does all work together, but its distinctiveness is actually one of the most beautiful features of it. So think of a puzzle And Christianity sees a puzzle as a beautiful thing, but it's incomplete, capable of much more beauty if only we know our distinct design and pursue our full expression of our unique design in the collective picture of God's creation. Now, a puzzle, if you think of the world as a puzzle from the pantheistic viewpoint, you would say the puzzle is actually already complete. It is whole. The thing that makes it more beautiful is not finding your, your, your unique place and uh, fulfilling your unique design, but it is actually to recognize that the puzzle is already complete and you need to erase any distinctive lines that you've put around yourself as a puzzle piece in the picture. You see how those very, two very different ideas of how uh, the puzzle uh, fits together. So the question is, Whose puzzle depicts the real world? Which brings us to our third rub, which is the gospel rub. And this is always my favorite, as you know. If you've been here, I usually start to get excited when I talk about the gospel. Pantheistic monism promises a real chance at salvation. To have real union with the really real, with prime reality. You know what other worldview says that? Christianity. The gospel of Jesus Christ promises a real chance at salvation to have real union with the really real, the ultimate reality. You see, they're the same. They promise the same thing, a chance at salvation, a chance at union with God. However, the promised salvation could not be more different. 
Pantheistic monism tells us that the union with God means becoming one with the impersonal universe, which means giving away our personality and our individuality. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us that union with God does not mean losing oneself and one's personality, but finally finding it in Jesus Christ. Moreover, the pantheist would say salvation is not the advancement to a better reality, but it's the acceptance of the world as it is, that it's as good as it gets. However, the gospel teaches that salvation means that the world is not as good as it gets. God actually wants it to be better. He wills it to be much better, to be more as he designed it to be. So this is not as good as it gets. But he wants us actually, through salvation, to begin to work for and secure a better future for both us and for all of creation. See how those are very different? Finally, the pantheists uh, will say that salvation begins by realizing our present already connectedness to the oneness with, which is God, which is Brahman. So it begins by realizing that we're already connected. Now here's the real rub. The gospel teaches us what? That salvation begins not by realizing that we're already connected to God, but realizing that our present situation is actually one of utter disconnection with God. We lack oneness with God. Realizing that is the beginning of salvation. So both begin with realizing, but one is realizing you're already connected, and the other is realizing that you are disconnected. So for the gospel, we are taught through the death and resurrection of Jesus that God, because of the disconnectedness, would not allow us to remain in that state out of love for us. And so he did something about it. He came into the world through God the Son, who was Jesus Christ, that he lived the life that we could not live, that he died the death that we should have died, and then he rose again to a new life that we have access to if we place our trust in him. So our salvation begins only when we realize that we are depraved, which is to say we are bent out of shape beyond our own self-repair. In every possible mode of our being, we have a malfunction, we, have, we are broken from our original design, and once we realize that, it is not by our own effort that we put ourselves back together. No matter how diligent, no, not, no matter how good our technique, no matter how sincere we, we try, we'll never put Humpty Dumpty back together again. We can't do it. We can't put our, we've fallen apart. We've fallen off the wall. We're broken. We can't put ourselves back together. But it's in the midst of this soul-bruising realization that we are so far from what God intends. When we realize this, this actually is the beginning of God's work in our life. Because he's now shown us the way it actually is. And by showing it, now we can start to look in the right places for the help we need. And the help we need is not within ourselves. This would be uh, the way of uh, the religions of, e of Eastern uh, pantheism. Salvation begins in ourselves. No, we realize when we realize that we are far from God, that our salvation is somewhere outside of ourselves. 
And it's then, through the preaching of the gospel, the hearing of the story of the man who called himself God, who died on a Roman cross, a powerful, universe-bending death that became the only way to put us back together again. That's the gospel. Salvation is outside of ourselves, not within. And it's through one man. And his name is Jesus. They called him the Christ. And when I realize that I'm not enough, and I see Jesus for who he actually is, what I begin to see is that he is enough. And when I see that he is enough, then I can throw myself at his feet, and I can beg for the grace of God. And what I realize is that God has already granted me an offered his hand of grace in my life, wanting me to find a true solution to the ultimate dilemma, which is my brokenness, my lostness, and I find it right there. And Jesus says, be whole again, not in your own power, but in mine. Jesus is sufficient. His divinity is sufficient to connect us back to God. We are not sufficient in ourselves. And what begins as a realization of my brokenness ends in a renewed vision and hope of a reality that far surpasses anything that we have currently in this world, in the present. It's something far greater. And once again, we see that it's the resurrection We talked about this two weeks ago. It's the resurrection that takes center stage because the hope that we have that our present reality is not our future reality is promised and guaranteed by the reality in historic time of Jesus Christ because he is already the risen Lord. He has already stepped into that new kind of existence that is promised to us. And the not yet in the future fulfillment, which is to come when God through Christ redeems the totality of his creation to a new perfection that's far beyond anything else, we see it begin in the resurrection. And we step into it when we trust in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the truth of the gospel. And here's the deal. Every other religion, including the religions of pantheistic monism, are completely different from Christianity in that way. Pantheistic monism tries, like every religion does, and it's, it's not a bad motive, but it's trying to make sense of the circumstances of this life and make this life livable. In this way, it, it appeals. It appeals actually quite a lot to Western sensibilities because we have this idea of utilitarian pursuit for self-betterment, for making this life the most livable and enjoyable and comfortable as it can be, reducing stress, bringing peace. And it seems at first anyway that it's better to find that apart from faith in a way that we can control, that we can work out on our own. And this is ultimately how all religion works, but it's not how the gospel works. And it does make life more livable. It does bring real peace and real comfort. It does bring all those things, but in, li- in this life only. So we say, yes, we see that this way of thinking and these techniques that have developed because of this way of thinking, they might bring you peace in this world, which is noble and prudent, and we should applaud because God is a God of peace. But, however, we must say no 
that the peace in this life is our ultimate goal. There is a kind of peace that we are seeking that is beyond just this world, beyond our current circumstance. A peace that leads not to more of the same present reality, but a peace that leads and follows from redemption and restoration that is available in Jesus. That's what the gospel promises. That's what we're moving towards. And we see the difference in this in the way that Jesus lived and moved. Jesus in the storm does not teach us how to cope with the storm on the sea. No, he stands up and he rebukes the storm and he says, stop. Jesus doesn't see the leper and say, let me show you how to live with this pain and disease that you have. No, he says, be cured. Jesus doesn't see the blind man and teach him how to read Braille and teach him how to live and work in the world. No, he says, I want you to see. And Jesus sees death, and he attacked it. At the age of 33, he didn't wait out and live a full life. He attacked it at a young age, and he said, you know what? I am going to push back on death. I am not going to write you a book about how to live a long and prosperous life. I'm going to go and do something about it at the age of 33. You see the difference? Jesus is not as concerned ultimately about helping us live In our present circumstance, he's all about mending our broken circumstance. He sees the broken connection. He realizes we're not connected with the one, and he's done something about it. He's done something about the real separation of human beings from God. And if the gospel message is true, we would not be loving, compassionate friends and family if we did not tell people about this message that there is a kind of connection and peace beyond being connected with this world alone. Pantheistic monism indicates that we are, by nature, children of peace with God. Ephesians 2 paints a different picture, saying this, By nature we are children of wrath, disconnected from our Creator, rebels facing punishment for treason. Only by realizing this natural state of affairs can we, in honesty, repent of our orientation towards God and ask him forgive me forgive me Lord and then by the finished work of Christ we can also as Ephesians 2 says be made alive together with Christ by grace we have been saved and are raised up with Christ and as it stands we are not at one with life right now but we are actually at one with death we are incapable of establishing the life-giving connection By any man-made technique, only by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, only by the grace of God, applied to us through faith alone and the finished work of Christ, can we be made one with God. One with God. Oh, that that would be true of each of us here today, that we would be one with God through Christ. Let's pray.